0: Hi friends, welcome to The Trauma Tapes. I'm Dr. MC McDonald, a PhD trauma researcher and life coach. It is my goal in life to reframe the way that we understand trauma. And I think if we want to understand trauma, we need more stories, more examples, an archive of trauma stories. But not just an archive where someone lays their story down for posterity and walks away, an archive that gives them something back, some attunement, some empathy, a reframe, integration. Maybe some little piece of knowledge or understanding so that they walk away feeling like the thing that makes the least sense in their lives makes just a little more sense. This podcast is That Archive. I'm here with my sister Elizabeth Meadows. Each week we read your letters and give you information and advice about how to understand and demystify your experiences and symptoms so that you can heal without shame. So pull up a chair, grab a coffee, and join us. So today's really exciting. Um, Obviously, we know that this season is all about shame. Our letter writers are sending kind of confession letters of things they're ashamed about, STDs, snooping, cheating. So far, there will be many more. We have lots of letters. Keep writing in at thetraumatapes at gmail.com. And the the reason, just to recap, that we're focusing on shame, what I've seen in my work is that shame is without a doubt, the biggest barrier to healing. And I also have kind of a working theory that shame is a kind of trauma, right? If we define trauma as unbearable emotional experience that lacks a relational home, then shame really fits in with that definition. It's an unbearably emotional feeling. And often you can't, for whatever reason, find a relational home often because you, you don't feel like you have legitimacy to share it with someone. Maybe you don't have anyone who relates. Maybe you've tried to share it and you've been shut down or shamed again. So we have been thinking about kind of how to address shame with each of the letters. Today, we're going to go a slightly different route. We have my dear friend, Paul Chamberlain here, and we want to talk about how shame is typically dealt with in you know coaching and therapy spaces. And Paul maybe has a slightly different take that we think is going to be powerful. Hi, Paul. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit?
1: Yeah. Hi, um, MC. Hi, Lisa. Um, my name is Paul Chamberlain. I am known as the smart, funny, tortured coach. I come from 20, 25 years of creative corporate work. And um, after some pretty rough years, a period of redemption came upon me and um part of the, one of the modalities that helped in that redemption was coaching along with holistic health practices, therapy, and, um, a whole bunch of better habits than the ones that got me in trouble in the beginning. And so it inspired me to be in this place and, um, to be a coach and to acknowledge suffering and shame and trauma. And that's the space that I really want to work in. I don't care about your relationship. I don't care about your job or leadership. I truly believe that all of that is secondary or even tertiary to your essence and getting the self and your internal under control and really wrestling and grappling with that because that's what I believe. And that's how I came back.
0: It's the wrestling and the grappling. (laughs) That's where we're going to go. Um, I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Do you mind starting out? We're just going to dive deep right into... Actually, I have to say, I have to give you credit because I don't think I've done this yet, that when we were thinking about the, um, the, the topic for this season, the, the idea of shame actually came from a conversation that I had with Paul. Um, where I told him the story of being at a conference and someone uh, at an after-conference kind of drink thing sidled up next to me and said, without any context, hey, you want to go to the deep dark? (laughs) Which, (laughs) you know, at an APA conference on, you know, (laughs) trauma, psychology, I can't remember which conference it was. That's like the best thing pickup line you could ever imagine. <laughs> right. <And laughs> nothing
1: has ever been so equitably creepy and sexy at the same time.
0: Right, right exactly. <laughs> and it was such a great conversation because there was no, oh, hi, this is my name, this is what I do, this is whatever. It was just like, all right, let's go. Mm-hmm. Give me your, what are you what are you grappling with? What are you wrestling with? What's your biggest shame point? Um, and we both went there and it was a fascinating conversation. I don't know that we ever got each other's name. And so I told Paul that story and he said, you have to tell that story on the podcast. That is the beginning of the, the season is the deep dark. So that being said, can we just go right to the deep dark, Paul? Where are your shame points? What are your top three things you grapple with when it comes to shame?
1: Um... In your- Well, you know, as you and I have been diving into this more and more, I've been thinking about, you know, thinking about just contemporary adult shame. And then Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. And I kept going back and back and back. Um, I had an extremely wonderful and idyllic childhood. I was a Montessori kid and I have a very positive, um, it was a very positive experience. I mean, I still remember the first and last names of the kids Uh Um, that I went to school with between the ages of five and nine and, um, and then transitioned into public school. And it was the most, it was such the brutal transition of going from this incredibly holistic, almost (laughs) bucolic educational environment into a public school system where immediately you're thrust into, oh, you were one of the smart kids. You know, there's just this anti-intellectualism, this <laughs> Lord of the Flies kind of situation. <laughs> and I was, and you have to wrap your books. You have to protect your books. You have to put book covers on your books. Why would you mistreat books? You know, it was just like that stuff yeah. was just not. And so that was the beginning of like, okay, tamp it down, bring it down a notch, begin, begin to fit in. So that may have been the beginning. And then the second one was as I was starting to into adolescence and having sexual awakenings and realizing that I had a crush on the Bionic woman, but I also had a crush on my classmates who was male. I'm like, Mm -hmm. wait a minute, what's going on here? And back then being Gen X, there was no place to go. There was nothing that was either being, I mean, it was either... I mean, you were either, you know, Colonel Steve Austin or Paul Lynn. There was nothing in between Mm -hmm. in, you know, in pop culture to grapple on to. There was no, there was nothing talking about a elevated noble masculine or anything like that. So it was like, okay, then this is bad. And let's just tamp this down. Um, Mm -hmm. so bisexuality was nothing. And, um, And then that began to really percolate into dating life where there were two worlds it was never they were never blended they were never discussed um the any kind of expression of same-sex attraction was done under the cover of night was done you know it was lurid and it was secretive and it was also in the day of you know hiv in its prime it was punitive mm-hmm. you know there were mm-hmm. there were death sentences associated with it so it was just getting dark and more and more compressed um and then i had experiences where i made a you know made an actual pact with myself that if i was becoming involved with a woman and things were going in the right direction that i would um, you know, I would disclose that I had had experiences with men. Sometimes it was met with, you know, tepid approval. Oh, that's okay, I guess. Or other times, I mean, there were a couple of times where purses were picked up at the table and they left mm. and said, "Yeah, I can't go there." So that was another thing. It's like, okay, I can be straight. Everything gets shoved down. Mm. Um, and then I was also never fit in. I think it goes back to that Montessori public school thing. I could be in multiple communities. I, but I never felt a part of it. Like I joke Mm -hmm. about it. I collected comic books from the age of nine years old, go to the San Diego comic-con. And after two hours, I'd be like, okay, this is too weird. I got to get out of here. This is, you know, this isn't, or else I'd go to a gay bar with friends. And I'd after a couple of hours, I'd be like, okay, this is too gay. I need to get out of here. So I never really found my pocket. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, Later on, marriage, marriage, um, you know, married the love of my life, lived in Maui, had kids, you know, it was idyllic. And then it all started to pile up in my 40s with kids. And um, I never drank, but I acquired a taste for red wine when I was 38 and um, a really big taste for it and kind of tumbled down that. Whole. And then I started to, then the business started to falter. And so now there was not being able to provide, financial shame, all the things that hit gentlemen or providers at that age like, mm-hmm. oh no, I'm not living up to what I'm supposed to. My wife does not feel safe. Mm-hmm financially home wise. And then that just caused a spiral and like what I like to call a heist mentality where I was swinging for the fences on everything. Like, okay, yeah. if I can get this job, if I can get this client, uh, I can, uh, you know, it'll solve everything. Yeah. So, um, and then there was a final job. We produced a national comedy festival here in Vegas. Um, we ended up it was it was a critical success. It was beloved. It was a success by all metrics except the financial one, and it put us about you know six, seven figures in a hole uh, financially. Mm-hmm. And I knew that the day of the festival and the night of we it was confirmed that we were in a lot of trouble. and that morning, I stood on the edge of a parking structure in downtown Las Vegas, oh. and it was gonna be it. That oh. was. That was going to be it. And um, the memory of my children pulled me back. It was binary. It was a real binary moment. And then the next month was hell. Um, trying to, you know, recover from that scrape, figure out financially how comics were going to be paid. It was just, it was hell. And then it was my 50th birthday. And then that led to another um, serious suicide ideation moment. And that's when my wife said enough. Um, I have enough with yet. So that was my lowest point. That was my nadir at that point. Um, the shame had all piled up and I did not know what to do with myself at 50 years old. Um, I had completely, and then there was stuff after that. Um, then there was the comeback. Then re- rekindled the family, got the big job. Money was in everybody's, everybody's feeling safe, but I hadn't done anything for myself. So that goes back to what I was saying yeah, you can provide, you can do this, you can go back and meet all the archetypes, but until you fix, um, what was inside, mm-hmm. nothing, nothing really matters. So, mm-hmm. and, um, I did and that, that's what I think we're going to talk about, but, um, yeah, it was, um, it was an interesting, interesting road, a painful road.
0: Yeah. So painful and hell would a come back. Yeah, exactly.
1: It's, it's something that I'm settling into now and really realizing, um, what it, what it was like. And, um, there's, there's a little, you know, almost supernatural bent to it is that I think about all the things that happened in sequence. They happened in the perfect sequence. There was never Mm -hmm. any modality that I tried like plant medicine played a big part, microdosing, ayahuasca. There was never any time or any modality that I tried where I'm like, oof, man, that was money down the drain. Okay. Let's, Mm -hmm. let's just forget that every single one contributed to the other. Every single one did not give me a singular um, solution where Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, that's it. And then I, Proselytized, you know, ayahuasca or deliberate cold exposure or mm-hmm. fitness or nutrition—they all kind of morph together.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, there's two things that come up as you tell your story. That one is that um, I, I sometimes get in trouble with people when I say that the you don't have to rush because the wound will wait. And people are mm-hmm. like, "Oh, great! Thanks for the optimistic take. <laughs> It'll <Like, they'll laughs> wait for you." But what I mean is that I think sometimes we live in a culture where, where once we realize that there is an issue, we feel like we have to power through it and often powering through it, um, especially if it's something that has just happened, is not necessarily the answer. And, and I think the one of the only consistent things about the way that trauma sort of takes hold is that once it's in the system, it stays yeah. and you can move on and you can look successful and you can have like what feels or looks like from the outside, like a comeback. And if you haven't gone back and healed those wounds, they will wait and fester. And I think this is, you know, when you talk about suicide, there's um, Prima Levy was a Holocaust survivor. And there's a number of people in the same kind of boat who committed suicide like 40 years later after like a wildly successful writing career, and people are still writing about why, how, how could he possibly have committed suicide? How could that possibly have happened? He was successful, yeah. And to me, it's like, well, he, because he was carrying that darkness the whole time, and that gets heavier and heavier and heavier, and it waits. You know what I mean?
1: It does. It's it's like black mold in a house. I mean, you right. you can get your house ready for a showing. Yeah. But if there is this toxic hidden thing and that's what it is, you're I mean, when I that summer after the suicide attempts, it was all I was doing was trying to rebuild my family.
0: Mm-hmm. All I
1: was trying to do was put it back together. That was my goal. That was my singular goal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I got a six figure chief creative officer job for an esports company here in Vegas. And then everything was okay. And then I was also experiencing a level of creative success. Um, and I was celebrating. It was sort of, I, I really spiked the football. It was like, okay, honey, here, did it. Kids are good. This. Now I've been through hell. And now I'm going to do this instead of taking stock. And there isn't a single person that could have ever sat me down and went like, slow your roll, cowboy. This is, mm. this is going in the wrong. you know, you're doing it again. There's nothing, there's nothing that could have, you know, until, mm. until I couldn't, until I faced my own shame, mm. which was me drinking red wine out of a coffee cup at 11 o'clock in the morning and getting mm-hmm. busted for it. And it's mm-hmm. just like, ah, oh, this is just not, I even had an experience in during plant medicine where I was journeying and I had this incredibly powerful, older male, noble, masculine spirit, like come over me. And just with this, like, Oh, me, you can, you can, <laughs> you can be so much better than this. You, you know, mm-hmm. did you, man, you are a hot mess. It wasn't judgmental. It wasn't, mm-hmm. it was, it was compassionate. It was just like, Oh, let's just look at this, you know, come let's go. And it, the, I had never felt that before. And, um, I've had a lot of people interpret that for me, um, what it meant both on a, what my brain was doing at a neurological. Mm-hmm. And then also from the, you know, from the spiritual side, from the whole plant medicine context.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, And um, there are a couple of things that I I would love to get the Montessori idea. You know, we, Mac and I have two brothers that went to Montessori and I'm just, I, I love that you went all the way back there to, and that's, that's such a real experience to go from a Montessori environment to public school. And I understand that. And also the, um, the HIV, I mean, I, you know, I'm Gen X also, and I remember how terrifying that was at that time, you know, we, we grew up in a, um, in a small, um, suburban, um, town in Massachusetts. And we had, um, when I was in high school, we had two brothers that were hemophiliacs that had, um, contracted HIV through transfusions. And the governor of the state flew into our school to give a talk, you know, about to not be afraid of them and to not, um, you know, to treat them kindly. And it was, it was just, it was a crazy, crazy time, you know? And it was, uh, it, it, it reminds me of where we are now, you know, with, the, with COVID and the pandemic a little bit that um, just, we didn't know what was happening. We didn't know, you know, anything about this. Our, our first reaction was fear in a lot of ways. So I, I completely understand your feelings at that point and how terrifying that was. So th- those are two things that really kind of resonate with me. But Mike, I just have a question. When you your 50th birthday and, and the suicide attempts at that point, did you decide to go on this journey or was, were these things that you had been curious about all along?
1: I, prior to that, I had, um, I was trapped on antidepressants. I couldn't get off. I couldn't wean off oh. antidepressants. Um, okay. and then I was also drinking red wine at the same time. So I was completely like taking my brain out and putting it in a Cuisinart as far mm-hmm. as chemistry and all that. Um, and I read an article in vice about microdosing, about psilocybin. And I actually reached out to Dr. James Fadiman, who worked with Timothy Larry, who was back in the original, you know, guys before it all got shut down, doing their research. He actually lives up in the Bay area mm-hmm. and I wrote him a very passionate email. And literally the subject of the email was called suffering in Maui. And I told him what I was going through and then he sent me a protocol and, um, and then magically I went to my gym and, um, my friend and trainer, I told her and she's like, Oh my God, my roommate's boyfriend is the mushroom guy here on Maui. And I'm like, so Ziploc bag later. Um, I, and I couldn't get off. I couldn't get off antidepressants cause I would get the white noise, the vertigo, the nausea. I just couldn't wean it down enough to get off. And, um, micro dosing sub perceptible levels of psilocybin for two weeks. I was off. I was free. Wow. So that gave me a window into alternative therapies and, and essentially kind of began the, my attitude of like, nobody's going to help you whether, whether that's benevolent offers or anything, nobody's going to help you. And, um, that has proven to be pretty, people will support you, but nobody Mm -hmm. will help you. Um, Mm -hmm. and even that is weak tea in some situations. And I know that sounds cynical, but it was, that, that was my, that was my experience.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: But Lisa, going back to the HIV thing, there was, there was so many layers in that too, was I was closeted bisexual. Mm -hmm. And if I contracted HIV, there would be shame that I was bi. There was shame that I had this disease Mm -hmm. and then the shame about what kind of life are you living where you are. And then the, also nobody was ever by you were either. And I tell, you know, I tell people this, the least tolerant population of my bisexuality were gay men. Oh, back then. Wow. They were like, Oh, you just haven't, you just haven't, you know, you don't have the balls. You haven't made, you know, the decision yet. There was no, it was just polarity there was mm-hmm. nothing in between so yeah. all i could imagine was contracting this this horrible disease of which i was seeing people go down around me
2: mm.
1: and then that phone call you know to my parents or somebody going well how, how did you get this this is a, mm-hmm. you know and then just falling down and i remember still to this day one of the most frightening stories i ever read was after 911 read it in the New York times about a whole swath of the population being notified that they had HIV when they were giving blood um, after the towers fell. because, Oh, we need blood. We need, you know, so everybody's like, okay, this is how I can do my duty. And they went. Hmm. And then after these acts of generosity and benevolence, yeah, you got, you got HIV. And I was just like, Oh my God, that's, that's how I'm going to go out. That's how I'm going to go out.
0: Yeah. yeah. There's, you know, the the this this brings us right to this this idea that, um, and I want to talk about secrets too because I think there's so much there, but that the party line with shame is okay. Well, so here's the problem, right? Let's make it simple. You have a secret. This is something you're keeping in the dark. the The thing that you need to do. The only answer is to bring it into the light. Kind of yeah. lay yourself open you know be vulnerable and it will you will receive empathy automatically and it will go away
1: yeah mm-hmm. that's you waiting for me to call bullshit on that
0: I'm waiting for <laughs> you to call <hear from>
2: bullshit
1: <laughs> I started hearing as we all did in the last 5 years about shame and about vulnerability and um you know from And I'm a massive Brene Brown fan and I immediately glommed onto it. I'm like, okay, vulnerability, opening myself up. I love the idea of dragging shame into the sunlight and letting it die. Mm -hmm. Um, but then, then I was like, okay, then what then? What, what I, I started realizing that it was all far more complex for me at least in dealing with my shame. It's like, okay, I can talk about it. Like the bisexuality stuff, I would talk about with key people. And of course, my wife knew from when we were dating. And it was like, there were things like that. But it was like, okay, it's out there, but I still feel it just just wasn't the right thing. It just wasn't the right dosage for what I needed. Mm -hmm. And this year has been a seminal year because... I came out publicly on my podcast, you know, that it was, it was both a whimper and a bang kind of thing. Um, I was reminded I became a crisis advocate at the LGBTQ center and we did a coming out, um, exercise. And it was essentially, I was looking, it it, it showed you friends, family, job, dream, your community. And I looked at these five things and I'm like, I'm not going to lose any of those. What the hell am I doing? Mm -hmm. So, I made my decision from there. Then I made my decision to publicly talk about my battles with depression and suicide ideation. And, um, and really it all started coming out. And that's when it shifted for me. It was like, wait a minute, shame is not supposed to be pulled out into the sunlight and disgust. And, and then the other, the other antidotes, the antidotes for battling shame, which I would hear were, empathy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brene Brown says you put shame in a Petri dish and you apply empathy on it. That creates a hostile environment. And it can't grow. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and I saw empathy from other people as sort of like this cost prohibitive drug. It's like, yeah, that's great. If you got a bunch of friends that can distribute and deliver empathy to you, what are you going to call them every day? You know, two hours a day. It was, it was, it was not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And then if you're lucky enough to have friends that can give you empathy, that's, that's another high bar. And right. then, um, and then MC, when I was talking to you about this, you pointed out the, the brilliantly obvious thing is like, maybe you're just not in a place to receive that empathy. So right. it's like, okay, empathy is, a, is really rarefied kind of first world, you know, yeah. palliative effect on yeah. this. I'm like, okay. And then the other one, was um self-compassion and being Mm -hmm. kind to yourself and it's like and pardon my french but when you are really in shame that's the last fucking thing you want to do is give yourself a break because that's the whole reason that you're embracing shame is like i'm not worth you know i'm just that's why i want to take myself out that's why i want to whack myself so in reflecting back how i came back i took an attitude that shame must be brought to heal. That when you get to a point where you're like, I'm strong enough now, I'm going to kick open the door. I'm going to grab shame by its collar and drag it outside. And now Mm -hmm. shame will be interrogated. It will be dissected and it will serve me. As I said, shame is an occupier. It is a vishy government installed by trauma to control your life. And it's time to Establish resistance because yeah. nobody else is going to come in there and do that. And I really believe that shame is instructive, that mm. there are things that you can pull from it. And mm. um, but, yeah, I mean, my philosophy now is shame must be brought to heal and both H-E-E-L and H-E-A-L, you know, mm-hmm. on that um, it is. It's not to be purged. It's not to be suppressed. It's not to be exiled. It's not to be processed out. Mm -hmm. It's to have the living shit kicked out of it for what it took from you and take back.
0: I love it. That's
2: fascinating.
0: I think it's so, it's so interesting to me as you were talking, we've talked about this a little bit, but the, um, you know, self-compassion and empathy are inherently soft. They are, they are of value. And like you said, if you can find those resources, then that's wonderful. Um, but I think we need to look at what actually works for people who are really grappling with shame. And I think I, I know in my practice that self-compassion lands like, as my friend Gary would say, a fart in a spacesuit. Like it is. <laughs> it, it, it is. I mean, and it's.
1: It's, it's sort of like the antithesis to Alcoholics Anonymous where shame is an enforcement tool. Yeah. Right. And so, and so self-compassion is on the other side of the spectrum where it's like, no, you need to, you know, you know, show yourself some kindness, self-care, you yeah. know, and all that. And it's like, I don't like myself. Right. I, I've, I've got to make other people like me. right Right now. That's, I need to make sure that my wife feels safe. I need to make sure that my kids don't, you know, aren't afraid of me, you know, fuck me for right now. I don't, I don't deserve any quarter.
0: And there's, there's two things as well, which is that um, number one, I think we need to pay attention whenever resistance comes up because resistance is power. And so when I tell a client, you know, go look at Kristen Neff, she has wonderful stuff on self-compassion. Um, Christopher Germer has a great book on it. And I believe in the, in the theory, if you can get there, um, but resistance comes up immediately. They're like, Oh, fuck yourself. Self-compassion. Really? That's what I'm going to do. And I think like, we need to tap into that power because in a moment of incredible struggle, if the power is coming in the resistance, then that's what you need to turn to not just try to continue to do the thing that you're resisting. And then the second thing is that when it works, when, when the empathy works, when I can see a client get to a place of self-compassion, that is a place of vulnerability of of a little bit of a breaking down, breaking through. But mm-hmm. it's sort of, um, I don't know how to describe the, like, the gesture that I'm making. It sort of breaks you down. Yeah. And so it's very different from this place of, no, I'm going to drag you into the sunlight by your collar yeah. and you will obey me.
2: Yeah, there's energy. And, it's like it's like the self compassion and empathy is like passive. It, you yeah. know, it feels like, it's, and, it's and, also, and there's it's, energy in kicking its ass. You yeah. know, I think for me, like the the self compassion and the empathy come after I'm worn down from kicking its ass <laughs> when I'm yeah. tired enough to let it in. Yeah, or, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great point, Lisa. It's 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 sort of like self compassion and empathy are sort of like the you know the physical therapist after right. yeah. triage, right. surgery, right. convalescence. Right. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, now I'm ready to walk three miles or I'm ready to do a 5k. Okay. Right. Now self-compassion and empathy, and we can get right. there. But in the beginning, it is, you know, that this is actually something that I talked to MC about that I've noticed in, in reading a lot of the literature, the and, and MC stop me when I, when I, you know, I punch above my weight on this, but the, um, the compassion and the empathy, these are all received by the prefrontal cortex. These are complex
2: mm-hmm.
1: concepts that need to be processed intellectually. Your trauma and shame is in your amygdala it is fight or flight. It, 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 Mm -hmm. it has no relation to language. It has no relation to reason. It just has relation to Mm self-protection. And so I'm like, okay, it's, it's, you know, it's sort of like giving, you know, prehistoric man, a laptop going, Oh my God, the shit you can do with this is amazing. And it's like, (laughs) I I, don't,
0: yeah. I got to build a bridge. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I got nothing. And, um, and so that's, and so you have been in flight for mm-hmm. years. You have been running, you have been hiding, you have been suppressing it. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, let's use the other raw material inside mm-hmm. this. And that's fight.
0: Yeah. And or frozen, it, right? I've seen so or many. You're frozen, yeah. Who are just, and I think we miss this as a symptom because we think it's just depression. But when you've had that level of shame, that trauma, and then you shut down and freeze, you can't do anything. The, and then the, the people tell you the antidote is just to, to, you know, get a little softer and have mm-hmm. some self-compassion. And like you said, these, these sophisticated concepts you can't connect to. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The, um, there's a, a thing and I think Peter Levine is the, is the person who coined this idea, but I could be wrong that um, trauma needs the opposite action. And so um, when you've been, you've been brought to heal by shame It makes perfect sense that then the antidote to shame, if we take shame as trauma, then is to is to bring it to heal.
1: And I mean, the romantic notion of the hero's journey of the vanquishing of the, you know, rising to the occasion, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. we can go full Joseph Campbell on this and Mm -hmm. like, you know, the whole Luke Skywalker thing of just, you know, rising up and meeting, you know, meeting your oppressor is, is a romantic ideal that you can, I, I can sink into that easier. And I don't know whether that's just because, you know, huge geek at heart, but I mm-hmm. can settle into that. It's like, okay, if I'm going to go to battle with something, I can go, to, I I can picture this. I can yep. know that, that I'm in that place and that mindset. And, um, and I've been blessed. And like I've talked about this sequential healing that I've done, I've, magically and coincidentally tripped upon the things that have helped me do this. And, um, and one of them was, and MC, I can talk about it if you don't, you know, what we talked about yesterday. In,
0: yes, but in I just, the can I say process. one thing before you, before yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Yeah. that, um, what you're saying about that vanquishing and, and the Joseph Campbell stuff comes directly from young and this idea That's that right. And in Jungian circles, I've seen—I've never actually found this quote—but Brene Brown says that in Jungian circles, shame is the swampland of the soul. Yes. And I think that's such an interesting, like, what, when you think about the images of like what happens in a swamp, right? There's monsters and mystical things, and like mm-hmm. there's going to be this kind of um, vanquishing of something if you're going to get out of there. Um, and in in the red books, in in Jung, in the red book, the um, the image is a dragon. And he drew mm-hmm. that and talked about that and and the the Ouroboros, the the dragon that eats itself. This sort of um, yeah. and I just so I wanted to just connect that because I think that that's that you're onto something. That's that the seed was planted, but then it went in a different direction in a clinical way. And
1: what I love about Jung is that you always have a choice. There's there's always there's always a a chance for rebirth. Like my favorite part is the afternoon where he refers to that mm-hmm. middle age as the afternoon. And he was so incredibly prolific and successful in his later years and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. He never, he never took a knee. He was just like, let's, right. you know, it just gets better and better and better. The casing mm-hmm. just changes. Mm-hmm. And the quote, I mean, it hangs on my bathroom wall and it, it's, it, it fuels me. And it's, it, you know, it's, I'm not what happened to me. I am what I choose to become,
2: mm-hmm. yeah. and
1: so it's like you just keep going. Just right. and um, so yeah, that that is what that is what's fueled me. It's like you are yeah. not you're not what you were,
0: right? And this idea that that the self is always oriented toward wholeness and individuation, yeah. and if you can just follow the path, that these things will get integrated. But if you're busy on your path, shoving everything down, keeping everything, you know, under the rug, then that's going to really hinder your, your progress.
1: It's a tough, I mean, it is a, it is a brutal, brutal, tough road. I mean, that Mm -hmm. of letting go of surrendering and, you know, that my favorite James Baldwin quote is that there's nothing more dangerous on the planet than a man who has nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. It's like when you get to that rock bottom, when you, when you finally do see yourself after a bender and three trips and rehab, and you're looking at motel mirror and finally see yourself for what mm-hmm. you are. You are like, oh, okay, this is, this mm-hmm. is it. This is the inflection point. Yeah. And so what to do after that point, that's, that's when it gets scary. Because mm-hmm. you're like, okay, I'm raw, I'm open. Mm-hmm. Let's try this. Let's go. And if you're not met with a certain degree of success, sort of like Stutz, you know, and, and yeah. um, Phil Stutz saying to his superiors after a first session, "Just listen to your patients. They'd, it'll come out." And he's like, yeah. "If I don't give them hope after the first session, what what compels them to keep coming back?" And yeah. that's that's where my whole idea of shame must be brought to heal is like. Okay, the very first step is to see it as a son of a bitch that's kept you, that's kept you down. That it is this installed, you know, authoritarian government in your head, yeah. and now it's time to to rise up.
0: So, when you think about that, can you walk us through what that looks like? Which I think is where you were going a minute ago.
1: Yeah, I mean. It's mostly addressing the limbic system and the autonomic processes of all the things that you are deprived energy in when you're racked with shame, you are just doing the bare minimum, very similar to, you know, you're depressed. I mean, you, you are, shame is you are carrying around this, this chronic depression and, and then also unable to integrate into social surroundings um, so interrupting that, breaking the circuit. And I didn't know that I was doing this, but, um, one of the things that helped me the most, and I know that, you know, get, get laughed at, and I'm the crazy guy, but was deliberate cold exposure was putting myself in ice cold water every single morning. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it established a pattern. It established a habit. It established a healthy way for me to meet my demons every, I don't like it any less each morning.
0: Um, So if for listeners who may not know about cold exposure, can we, can you walk us through like how cold, how long, because I think this isn't just, Paul isn't just taking a cold shower.
1: (laughs) No, not taking the cold. I mean, everybody's seen Wim Hof, the Ice Man, who goes and does these tremendous feats of physical stamina and endurance, and puts himself in you know Arctic situations. But there's actually some really hard science behind this. Is that if you put yourself in temperatures, say, below fifty degrees for an extended period of time, and as and the recent study said, to get the optimal benefits, eleven minutes a week. Of exposing yourself. And I mean, this could be taken a walk in 40 degree weather in a t-shirt just to where your body has to achieve what's called thermogenesis, where mm-hmm. you're not using a blanket. You're not using a heater. Your body's using its own mitochondria, its own fat to heat your body up. And there's, there's, been, there's massive benefits in that. But where I got the benefit from this was The same response that you get to shame and trauma of like raised heart rate, breathing, Mm -hmm. I can't get control of my body, I can't do this, is mimicked perfectly by dunking your naked ass in 40 degree Mm -hmm. water. (laughs) And because the fight or flight kicks in, it's not, you're not thinking about it. You get in the water and your brain is screaming, get out. You're going to die of hypothermia, get out. And your breathing is accelerated and there's a little bit of panic to it. Mm-hmm. And if you do it quietly, and I often see, and I really bristle against some of these social media videos of people like, woo, you know, cheering and then getting in these horse troughs mm-hmm. full of ice water and everybody's standing around them cheering or polar bears and stuff like that kind of bullshit for me the true power in it is quietly doing this is like, is like standing there in your skivvies with a towel at five in the morning going, what the hell am I What am I doing? I'm insane. I do not want to do this mm-hmm. and then doing it. And then those first 20 seconds where you're breathing and then you close your eyes and it's like, I'm okay, I'm safe. I'm not gonna die. And you get your breathing under control mm-hmm. and then I discovered this was the same thing as getting your trauma response under control.
2: It's that's like, that's so interesting. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, no, Mac, I know I told you this, that um, Gwyneth Paltrow and Brad Falchuk mm-hmm. were, did a podcast. You know, she interviewed her husband for a pod for a, um, her podcast. And he said that he said that he does the cold plunge therapy and it, it was the experience of, um, re-traumatizing yourself in a way. Right. And I remember saying to you, Mac, like, what, what, I don't understand. Like, what does that mean? And, and what does that look like? And you just right. described it so beautifully, Paul, thank you, that it, you can put yourself in the, if I'm, if I'm understanding yeah. it correctly, you can put yourself in the situation and then realize that you're okay at the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, it is it that simple?
1: It's that simple. And it's, uh, and it's also, um it's also got a double effect is it's not, it, this is nothing about endurance. And I mean, that's why I, again, bristle at the social media stuff, because it's not a fact, it's not the feet. It's the mental exercise of getting up to the edge going, mm-hmm. this is, I mean, I'll look at my watch and it says 31 degrees is the air temp outside. And I know the water is going to be 40 and I'm like, and I'm, and I didn't have a good night's sleep and I feel a little, I'm like, what are you doing? And then I do it and I'm in there. And after I get my breathing under control, my brain goes to like, holy shit, you're in there. Okay. You're in, we did it. Now we're going to go for the five minutes. Okay. We're going to go for the five minutes. And then what else I've integrated is EMDR. Mm -hmm. And so I will do rapid eye movement and I will like, laterally move my eyes back and forth, focus on something. It's a little bit of a time killer, but I didn't even know that that was even compounding the effect. Mm -hmm. And then I hit my mark and I get out and the elation and the brain chemistry that is just firing off in your head. Mm -hmm. Now you have a feeling of accomplishment. You know that none of your coworkers have done this. You know that nobody, you know, has done this. And you're like, all right, I, I think I can kick some ass today." Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. but it it is, if somebody has never listens to this and has never done it before and gives it a shot and they're only in there for 23 seconds, that, that is the same as swimming under an ice shelf. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, you did it. You got mm-hmm. up in the morning yeah. and you did it. Yeah.
0: And the thing is like, this is such a beautiful connection to, so Peter Levine, who, who's the uh, creator of somatic experiencing um, therapy, which is a very powerful um, therapy that helps folks who've, who've had trauma. And one of the reasons it's very powerful is because it's, it's all about the body, right? So we can do all this cognitive work and we can talk about how to integrate. And that's very important. I don't mean to dismiss that, but if you never deal with what's happening on the body level, you never fully deal with the trauma. And his idea is you know if you don't fa- like we we're getting triggers wrong when we think that a trigger means i have to avoid this thing for the rest of my life that's what your fear brain wants is to keep you safer and make your life smaller and if you face the trigger in your own way and peter levine talks about pendulation the way that you face it is not prolonged exposure therapy it's not that you blast through and re-traumatize yourself it's that you put yourself in the situation. You take yourself out, you put yourself in, you take yourself out this, this pendulating movement of I can go closer to this and then I can make myself. Okay. You learn then not only does the trigger not own you, but you learn how to sort of modulate your own nervous system, which is something that we think is outside of the realm of possibility, but it isn't. And Dan Siegel, um, who's a, he's, he does, um, he founded Interpersonal Neurobiology. He's a neuroscientist um, who works on child development, talks about this uh, image where if, 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 if you have a dog that has got your hand, right? You, let's say you have a pit bull. Your impulse is to pull your hand away. Mm-hmm. And what that will do is make the dog clench even harder on your mm-hmm. hand. And so what you have to do is work against that initial impulse and stick your hand in further because then the dog will gag and release your, and that's how he talks about how we need to handle triggers. And I love that because um, it goes right in line with what you're saying, bringing it to heal is a critical part of this process.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's, and, it's, and it's taking an inventory. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's essentially marshaling your forces before you encounter it. And it's like, okay, yeah. what am I shamed of? Why am I ashamed of it? And what are the worst repercussions of the shame? If I let it out, what's Mm going to happen to me? Am I going to be ostracized? Is this going to happen? Okay. And then it essentially you're doing Jungian shadow work at that time. Mm -hmm. You're like, okay, and I'm not going to encounter it. This is is what I'm going to do on Saturday. And maybe I'll check back on this next Tuesday. But right now I'm just going to catalog why I'm shamed. And what's going to be, what's worst case scenario Mm -hmm. and let's do an emergency preparedness plan. Mm -hmm. And then, and then sit and then sit with the, and then the other thing and that I did was sit with the injustice. It's like, okay, what is this taken from me? What has this, you know, when I looked back on my bisexuality, I was like, what, what relationships did it steal from me? what, Mm -hmm how did this change my relationship with my parents? And what was hilarious is that I told my parents the Thursday before the Tuesday, the podcast came out mm-hmm. and they were, they took it in stride. And then they sent me a picture of them holding up their wine glasses. And they go, we, you know, we love you. And, and it's like, mm-hmm. and, that was both wonderful, but it was also immensely depressing because it was like, okay, how many years did I go thinking that that would never be on the other side? And I was pissed. Mm -hmm. I was mad Mm -hmm. at that point. And, and sitting in a therapist's office and having somebody tell me to be nice to myself after that and let it go. Mm -hmm. Like, no, I -hmm. want vengeance. Mm -hmm. I want, you know, I, and And if there's a safe place to exact vengeance, it's in your own, your own soul. It's your own self. Right. right, You know, it's just like, and and have these mental battles. Mm -hmm. And it was when I had contempt for what was taken away from me was when
0: things began to click.
2: Mm -hmm. That's a whole lifetime
0: of relationships, possibilities. And then that's only like in that one area of your life, right? That stuff would have, I'm sure it affected your confidence um, you know, other decisions that you made when you're carrying a secret, it, it doesn't just affect that realm.
1: Yeah. And then, and then the financial shame. And I remember I felt the other thing about shame that I want to write about is that you can give shame as a gift to people. Mm-hmm. So say more. You, you can hold shame, encounter a group of people or a person who you feel less than, Mm -hmm. and you're giving them shame they're like here if just in case you don't think that i'm enough of a piece of shit i'm just i'm just going to keep my shoulders down a little bit lower Mm -hmm. i'm not going to punch back i'm not you keep you know and you're you're handing it out to people going don't have enough of a a poor attitude of me here you can have it even though they may not and they don't even know Mm -hmm. and they don't even know and this was this was my brother-in-laws who the metric of success was financial and status and this. And when we were, when I was slipping up, my shame went down. My shoulders went down. My wife saw me in this. And so now I'm like, I look back on that. And it's another thing. It's like, I can't, and I don't come down on myself. I blame the shame. Yeah.
0: I'm obsessed with with that idea that sh- what what does shame do for us? How is it adaptive? Yeah, and I, and I think you're kind of getting to that a little bit.
1: Yeah, and it it, it's, it is it is the shitty little henchman of trauma. It's yeah. it trauma has done its damage and left town and left shame mm-hmm.
2: behind. Right. Right.
1: Because shame is. Shame is self-inflicted. Trauma can be inflicted by a third party or externally,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but then shame, it just, it's ingenious. I mean, I really, and then that's when I began to personify trauma. Trauma is just, trauma Darth Vader mm-hmm. and shame are the stormtroopers. It was yeah. like, all right, I've done damage here. Now I'm leaving these guys behind to yeah. continue to fuck things up for you. Yeah. And you know, you can't get rid of them.
0: And I'm, I'm a, like, there's this way, like those henchmen have like a little swagger, you know? Because
1: yeah, like, they, yeah. so, they know the power, they know yeah. the power over you. They know how effective, yeah. I mean, there's really nothing that can bring you to your knees than mm-hmm. yourself and your, your attitude of yourself. Mm-hmm. It's why we find confidence and it's why we find swagger. It's why we find charisma Yes. So unattainable and so mm-hmm. desirable and mm-hmm. aspirational because it's like, geez, I wish I had that. I wish I didn't have this stuff in my head. Look at that guy. Mm-hmm. Look at that. Yeah, I mean, I remember one of my favorite scenes is at the beginning of Ocean's Eleven, <laughs> yeah. where George Clooney gets out of prison and he gets out of prison wearing the tux that he went into prison with. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he was just like, "All right, that's over with. Let's go knock over three casinos." And it's like. Okay. What? He's not he, he certainly is not belabored with shame about being incarcerated. He's ready to take and I'm like, wow, this yeah. is, you know, I can believe a man can fly after seeing this. <laughs>
0: yeah. That's amazing. Lisa, what are you thinking? I feel like your mind's blown.
2: My mind is a blown. I, I'm just I'm trying to wrap my head around it. I feel like shame is I like the stormtrooper. Um picture, you know, shame is what's left behind but shame is what you can fight trauma. You can't trauma is what's happened really. Yeah. Right. Mac. Yeah, um, and the shame is what's, what you can, um, you can kick its ass afterwards. And that's okay. where the energy comes from instead of okay. just being flattened by the trauma completely. Right. Yeah. It's like, that's I'm going to put on my boxing gloves and like, take care of this. Right. And I love the idea of like, on the other side, is, is strength and power and like you can have these experiences and come out stronger. Yeah. yeah. Like that. I think that's the beauty of it in a way. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. You, you don't come out.
2: Totally.
1: It, it, I don't want people to come out humbled by their shame or their right. trauma. I want them right. to come out. There is something to be learned from it. I mean, I look back on, you know, the, the status and financial shame that I had. And I, I just, I try to imagine myself what it would have been like if I had my wits about me. And it was, Mm -hmm. it wasn't, I wasn't trying to rise to a level that would repair that, Mm -hmm. but just if I just could have been Mm -hmm. in my own zone Um, and it, it just, it just, it's a cataract. I mean mm. it just blocks everything and then you you feel like hell on top of it. Mm. You just don't feel worthy and right. it's it's insidious and that's mm. that's why i hate it so much.
0: And it's also like it's this fate. it's it's the swagger is false because it's like the stormtroopers are not Darth Vader. They're just acting on his behalf. They don't have right. real sustainable, like, internal power. It's it's like the That's Wizard of right. Oz, right? That's yeah. like, mm-hmm. it's just a man behind the curtain. When you turn to it and and say, "Okay, now it's my turn," and I'm going to make you my bitch, it yeah. crumbles.
1: I, right. I mean, you know, I mean, MC. You and I talk all the time, and I'm constantly spewing out metaphors on this one, which
0: are always like stunning. <laughs> <laughs>
1: The one that's really that I'm I'm kind of wrestling with and I don't is that you are the godhead of shame.
0: Yeah.
1: You are the creator of it. You sustain it. You are the mother of your shame. You you hold it. You you nurture it. Yeah. You you give it sustenance. And that's I don't know if I could have handled that take from somebody. Mm-hmm. when i was in the, the throes of shame i couldn't sure it's it's accurate but i don't know if somebody said hey man you know you're the one that's shame's <laughs> over there because this. of you and i'd be like right. i need a drink
0: right yeah. <laughs> or 10 you know there's 10, this, yeah. i'm reminded of two two things from from philosophy one is the myth of sisyphus which i know we've talked about which is um so the myth of sisyphus sisyphus is the um the, the man who's rolling the boulder up the hill. And then mm-hmm. as soon as he gets to the top, it falls back down and he's doing this for eternity. He's gotten, he's in trouble. And that's, that was his, um, his penance. And um, Camus takes the myth of Sisyphus and he's like, we need to pay attention because Sisyphus is an absurd hero, because here's the thing that the gods needed to do. They needed to leave him his wits so that he could be aware of the incredible monotony of what he's doing. They could take everything from him except his ability to think about it. And so what that then means is that Sisyphus, yeah, he's rolling this, he's still rolling that boulder right now. He'll be doing it forever. He's been doing it forever, but, and he can do it in any way that he wants because they had to leave him enough like cognitive ability to know that he's doomed. And, Mm -hmm and Camus says, if we can imagine Sisyphus laughing, if we can imagine Sisyphus happy, if we can imagine Sisyphus angry, then we will be okay because we are Sisyphus. We don't get to choose the boulders that come into our lives that we have to roll up the hill. And as soon as we roll them up, there's going to be another one that comes back down. But the way that we do it is up to us. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I think that's, That's if shame is the boulder, right? Yeah. You got to roll that motherfucker up the hill, but how you do it. And then what you do on your way back down is up to you.
1: And, and this is where I come in and it's, it's a crude, you know, compound on that idea, but you're rolling a boulder. You're going to get pretty yoked. You're going to get pretty ripped and you're going to get stronger.
2: You know, there,
1: there, there are benefits
0: Mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. He ain't a weak man. Yeah. And the other one is this, this idea from, um, Plato's allegory from the Phaedrus of, uh, which is about, um, you know, what is the nature of the human soul? And he says the the soul has three parts. It's a tripartite soul. There's the, the person in, there's a chariot, there's a person, you know, driving the chariot. And then there's two horses. These two winged horses are, uh, opposite each other. One of them is light. The other one is dark. One of them is immortal. The other one is mortal. One of them wants to take you up into the heavens. The other one wants to drag you down. And the whole point of the allegory is to say, you can't cut off the dark horse. You have to integrate it so that the horses and you are working as a unified whole. And that's Mm -hmm. your way into, you know, success, the afterlife, whatever, however you want to frame that up. Um, But that involves, like, that That metaphor fits so perfectly with your model because you have to bring the horse to heel. You have to, that that dark horse has to be included in the conversation. You can't keep it in the closet. You can't cut it off from yourself.
1: Yeah, no. The best we can hope for in life is homeostasis. Yeah. Is not the you know, the expelling of it. It's Mm -hmm. like, you know, they say that at a cellular level, we are constantly dancing with cancer generation. You know, there are cancer cells, Mm -hmm. but our immune system gets them and gets them out. And so, and that makes the immune system stronger until everything completely gets out of balance. So there's, you know, um, external forces, epigenetic forces that come in and Mm -hmm. do that. But yeah, I mean, the best we can hope for is a balance, and to pull from both the best of both worlds. And mm-hmm. we we as humans love dancing, as I say, the dark shadows. We find it sexy. We find it alluring. We find it empowering. And it's only when it spins out of control. is I mean, everybody bitches and moans about every single movie where the villain is more interesting than the protagonist. <laughs> I mean, we love that. So... Yeah these highfalutin soft ideas of self compassion and empathy are wonderful on the other side, but mm-hmm. right. man, in, you know, you don't go to war with wiffle bats.
2: Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: I also, you know, I don't, I don't want to, to drag us back, but I, you know, it was interesting that you said in your own story that, you know, you had this really idyllic childhood, you were in Montessori, And then there was this sort of rupture where you're in public school all of a sudden. That's a perfect word. That was a perfect word. Yeah. And I, and I think that's our frame on trauma is that that wouldn't count. Right. Clearly it does because that was a rupture and you, you, you learned very early on that you didn't belong in the world. And that is to the nervous system, mortal danger.
1: Yeah, that was the, that was instructive. It was like, oh, this is how you stay safe. You fly below radar. Right,
0: right, right,
1: right. Yeah,
2: I love that you were able to identify that. Yeah, I, I I think that's most people or a lot of people could not identify that it goes back that far. That that right. was the the starting point. I mean, I right. think that's really beautiful that you were able to get there.
0: Thank and we that... had the same experience. What you had the same experience of going from Catholic school to public school and that rupture. Yeah.
2: I guess I got to think about that. <laughs>
0: well, that. And that's the cataloging.
1: That's the cataloging of the shame. It's like, where did right. I feel shame? Where did yeah. I, where well, did I stop being me because mm-hmm. of external forces or because of a traumatic event that, that, that taught me mm-hmm. how to survive?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, yeah. um, that's yeah. Really taking that inventory is, and then the flip side and then you look at the, you know, then you look at what you've what you've accomplished yeah. and whether that accomplishment is out of a whole year yeah. you were in cold water for 40 seconds yeah. all right right okay i took control i got yeah. i'll never forget the day that i looked at my apple watch and it said 6 minutes ago your heart rate was 56 degree 56 beats per minute and i was like <laughs> i was in the water 6 yeah. minutes what the hell yeah. and that's when it's like, oh, this is real. This is, you can do this. This isn't, this isn't a bunch of monks making their, making yeah. their garments steam because they're changing their body time. No, this is stuff that I can do in a pool in Vegas. Wait a minute. I got a shot at this.
0: Yeah. 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 Can I read a poem real quick? That's random. Of yeah. course. <laughs> do you know Invictus? <laughs> what are going
1: to Oh, Invictus. I don't know. Invictus was given to me a few times in my in my depths. <laughs>
0: but listen it's to it now. a good one. Because this is, so this is um, William Ernest Henley. It's, it's short. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Yeah. If that's not about making shame your bitch, I don't know what is. (laughs) I don't know what is.
1: Yeah. And, 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 you know, I think about that you and I have talked about that as making shame your bitch. It is the classic sense of, it is a feral dog. Yeah, It is caused damage. Yeah. And we are referring to that in its purest sense, not in a pejorative gender mm-hmm. contemporary oh, yes. way. It This is a fair, this is an animal that has yeah. been left behind to just wreak havoc on
0: you. Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, so if if you kind of, so, so if listeners are obviously thinking about this for the first time, because we don't usually talk about shame in this context, do you have two or three pieces of advice to get somebody started on the process?
1: Yes, I do. It's, it's that inventory. It's, Mm -hmm. it's to, and all of this is to be done in a meditative contemplative space. This Mm -hmm. is, you know, something for you to do and go back as, you know, as, as Lisa and I did to those moments of rupture. That's a beautiful thing. It was like, okay, when did I start to augment my personality and go into shame mode for protection or because it was just, it was easier to live and chronicle this. And this is something that I didn't talk about, but, um, this was another habit that, somebody pitched to me and I'm like, really, that's, that sounds a little woo woo. And then I did it and I was like, Oh my God, it was purge emotional writing. Mm-hmm. So catalog it, write it down, not on a computer. I'm talking pencil and a steno pad, mm-hmm. sit with it and, but do it within a 12 minute period. Mm-hmm. See if you can mm-hmm. just write the most heinous, angry, hurtful things yeah. that happen to you or you think about yourself and at that 12 minute mark you've set on your timer you put your you put your um your pencil down you fold it up and you go to a fire pit barbecue backyard a moment to yourself have it be slightly ceremonial doesn't have to be anything mired in tradition or religion or anything just your little moment and set that son of a bitch on fire
2: mm-hmm.
1: And watch it burn black. And i it's the weirdest thing. It has the most transformative effect. It's like, okay, that's a great starting point. It's mm-hmm. like, all right. And then over time, there are some tools and some things like that to begin to change the dynamic between you and your shame of finally personifying it and seeing like, oh, wait, yeah, you have had your heel on the back of my neck. Wait a minute. Mm-hmm. And then slowly get, but it's a progressive process. It's not like I'm going to write all my stuff down. I'm going to burn it. And then tomorrow I'm making shame. My bitch. Yeah. No, it's yeah. It's um, it took me five years.
0: Yeah. I love that. Okay. I feel like we could have 45 episodes about this. I know.
1: Lisa, I was just so waiting for you to hold my feet to the fire. I've listened to you on this podcast before. Oh "Oh boy, this is
2: going to be good. (laughs) Paul, I'm so, I'm so blown away by your story. I just, I, I really, I can't thank you enough for sharing it. I will be thinking about you and your story for a long time. And um, I know a couple of times on this podcast, I'm afraid of oversharing. And I, I, Mac has set me straight and said, you know, that that's where the, that's where the healing begins when you start to share your story. So, so thank you for that because it's, it's really beautiful. And um, I so appreciate you doing that.
1: No, thank you for receiving it. And that's the thing that's to somebody listening. That's what's on the other side. Mm-hmm. That's what's on the other side. And mm-hmm. I didn't know that. And I knew that people said like, Oh, once you, you know, once you crack it open, once you make yourself authentic, it all starts, you know, that's the self-compassion thing It's like, Ooh, look at this. No, but Once you let go of it, once you're like, yeah, it's, and then you have somebody, the email that I got after I talked about being bisexual from a woman who had lost her husband, who was also bisexual, had the same issues. And Mm -hmm. she's like, I wish I could have played this for him. That's all I needed. It was just that one person. Yeah, It was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Providing no worth living in my shame.
0: Mm Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. We end each episode with a tiny little joy, which is just this idea that if we orient ourselves towards the tiny things that are in our lives, they can provide an anchor point in the deepest struggle. And this idea comes from moments that I've had in my life, these like bathroom floor moments or, you know, where you are on your knees and thinking like this is over. And then you notice something pleasant, some tiny little fragment Um, and I believe that orienting ourselves toward tiny little joys can actually reframe the way we look at the world. Um, so I would love it if you joined in this practice with us, you can go first or last up to you.
1: (laughs) I'll I'll go last. I want to see best practices.
0: Okay. Lisa, do you want to go first? No, you go first. (laughs) I was going to laugh at mine, but, um, I have a piece of, um, intel on Paul that he doesn't know that I have, oh, which is a tiny little joy because when I found it, I laughed for, I want to say 24 hours. That may be an exaggeration, but, um, which is that Paul in, I think it was 1986 was on an episode of the dating game. <gasps> oh my
2: goodness. Oh Yeah. <laughs>
0: bring it into the light, Paul and finding this out via the podcast that you did with George Hahn. And then it's on your Instagram account, um, which we'll share at the end of the episode in a second. Um, just gave me so much joy because there's a little video clip that remains. And Paul has a full head of hair and it's the hilarious. That's <laughs> great. Oh, I love yeah. that.
1: I think I'm the only guy in 1987 that wore a double breasted Navy blue jacket on the dating game. <laughs>
0: You gave the vibe was, was this dude is like the dude you want to bring home to mom. Like,
1: Oh yeah. Oh, which was a dangerous one, which is, the, which is the one you were on the other way from. Oh yeah. No, I was just, uh, yeah, no, it's fun. There's no shame associated with that. That was the joy <laughs> from that was not winning the dating game was the girl forfeited the trip oh. and I could, I didn't have a replacement and so they're like, okay, you can have cash, but you got to come down to the studios and get it. And I went down to Gower Studios and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there were dingy, you know, television offices. Yeah. And I went upstairs to get the check and I walked into the office and there was this man in this big office sitting behind it, opens up this check ledger and it's Chuck Barris. <gasps> Chuck Barris wrote me a check for 1500 bucks and he's like, He's like, saw your episode. You did good, kid. And oh! Like, no. hey. And I still have a copy of that, a Xerox of that check. And I'm like, that's screw good. what happened. I go, I got to meet Chuck Barris. So that was that was all that was the best.
0: Why did she forfeit the trip?
1: Her mom wanted to be chaperone. And they said, oh, no, we provide our own chaperones.
2: Got it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's oh, that's neat. funny. Yeah. That's funny. So that's my to, I, Can you send that to me, Mac? Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: you have the
1: whole I, episode or just that clip, Paul? I have the whole I have the whole episode. I have Can the whole episode. It? I have my I yeah, it was my first answer that won. That was the that was the that was the kicker. That was, what was uh, it? The, so they hand out they handed us pirate hats and eye patches and for the first question. <laughs> and I'm like, oh shit. One, this is gonna mess up my hair. I remember I literally thought that <laughs> to myself when I get <laughs> it. To me. And I'm like, two, I'm like, how am I going to have to make an ass out of myself? And the question was, like, bachelor number one, if you were a pirate and I was on your ship, what would be our first date? Oh, God. And I said in pirate voice, you'd come aboard my schooner, see my cutlass and walk my plank. fucking crushed brought the house down it was yeah and uh yeah i think i won off of that first answer
0: i could
2: see you just be like (laughs) you can't say that stuff anymore (laughs) Uh,
1: yes i know it was yes it was not um it was it was of a time
2: (laughs) it was of a time (laughs) i like being reminded of that time that's amazing Oh my god, too funny! Lisa, do you have a tiny little joy? Um, yeah, mine is um, I, I guess it's like it's it's a little bit heavy. Sorry to to change the tone so quickly, oh, okay. but um, um, my tiny little joy is that this is traditionally a very difficult time of year for a lot of reasons, and I just did this little check in with myself today, and I feel I feel pretty good, and that was like something that I felt that I should celebrate in that moment that you know normally this is a time of year that can can take me out for for a number of different reasons. And mm-hmm. today I was like, okay, it's December twenty third and I'm doing okay. And mm-hmm. uh that felt good. So I appreciated it? that in the moment.
0: That's yeah. huge. That's not a small thing. It is huge.
2: It is huge. That's, it is huge. It is huge. Thank you.
0: It's so easy I think to get into the like the spin of it when you know that it's a it's a sad time and it's sad for lots of people and lots of reasons and then you can get you you can really like kind of talk yourself into it even when that's not what you're feeling. So the yeah. the freedom like letting yourself feel not that way and then imprinting it I think is not a small thing at all. That's huge. Yeah.
1: Just Thanks. just put on Judy Garland singing Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas.
2: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Um, I, my little joy is, is not necessarily a little one. It's, it's the fact that I have a friendship with MC and I am creative again. And I am in a, I, I found my, I I think I found my people in the coaching world and, um, I found my people in the, in the stories that I can convey to my clients and, um, it's, it, and I know that people who get chronically depressed and feel shame know that this is a rarefied place. This is, you know, Brigadoon, for God's sake, is that when you feel that you've got flow, when mm-hmm. you've got when you got a streak going. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of where I feel. Uh-huh.
0: I that's am great. so honored to be in your orbit, Paul. You're an amazing human. Where can we find you? Because people are going to want to find you.
1: Smart, funny, um, that's the website and that's spiders out to the podcast which is on Apple iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts and then smart funny tortured on um, instagram
0: awesome thank you so so much for being here this has been an oh, amazing thank you conversation. for having me
1: you honor me thank by you me, by me and Lisa it's a pleasure to finally meet you
2: it's a pleasure to meet heard, you. I've
1: heard so much both from MC and on the podcast. So Yay.
2: thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you. And I I'm gonna I'll report back as soon as I watch my first Marvel movie. <laughs> okay. <Is> that-
0: <laughs> MC will guide you. Yeah. Okay. Um thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe, and we will see you next time.
1: Thank <laughs> you.